Let me clear. Because as you well know, we do have power. Uh, talking about the AC. You're talking about the AC power. We don't have the AC power, but we've got a much bigger power source. In fact, last week we actually, there you go. Yeah, how about that? Last week we talked about that the fact that we need God's wisdom in order to do the works that God expects of us. Remember, James is focused on living out our faith. And we need God's wisdom in order to live out our faith. We need his wisdom in order to do the works that he's called us to do. But man, do we especially need his wisdom and his power to handle our passions. This morning we're going to be studying in James chapter 4. So turn with me in your Bibles to James 4. James has uh, uh, talked about the wisdom from above and now he is focusing on this life with the passions, with the desires that we face. James chapter 4, stand with me as we turn our focus to verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You're double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt. Pray with me. Father, put your word into us that we may deal rightly with our passion. In Christ's name, you may be seated. James is driving home this idea of living out your faith, doing the works that complete your faith. And we know that faith must be active. I mean, uh, uh, we know that if we say we love God, we've got to actually demonstrate that. We can't just claim it as true. we got to actually live that out. It's not anything new, not anything mysterious. Uh, the trouble is often not in our comprehension. We get it. We know what the truth is. We often know what it is we're supposed to do. Our problem is in the completion of it, actually doing what we know we ought to. And perhaps nowhere is that more, uh, more true than within our hearts. James poses the question in chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he gives the answer. What, what is it? Why can't you all just get along? Then he gives the answer. Is it not this? And obviously he's expecting, a, yeah, this is true. Is it not this? This thing that causes all the fighting, all the quarreling among believers. He's talking to believers. So what is it? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word for passions here is where we get our word hedonism, pleasure. He's not just talking about things you're passionate about. He's talking about carnal 
pleasures, things that draw you away from God and draw you into the kingdom of evil. This is something that takes you away from God. This isn't just a passion in general, because some passions are good. Some passions are not. He's talking specifically about those that are not, okay? So, so we've got this carnal pleasures. This is what he's focused on. And then, and then this word for war, I find kind of interesting. It's the word where we get our word strategy. It's not just fighting. It's not just haphazard, like chicken with your head cut off kind of fighting. Have you ever seen a chicken with his head cut off? Yeah, anybody ever actually seen that? Um, yeah, that's fun, isn't it? <laughs> it? Runs around all over the place. No, this fighting is strategic. It's targeted. This isn't just fight just to fight. This is fight to win, to dominate, to destroy. What he literally says is that the passions, the, the, the guilty carnal pleasures in you are fighting to destroy you. They're facing a war within them. That you, by the way, is plural. So it's not just one you. It's in the South, we have some ways to distinguish between you and you, right? We have you, that's you, one individual. And then we have y'all, that's a group of you. A group of yous is a y'all. And then there's a big group of yous that's an all y'all, okay? He's saying all y'all. Your passions, your pleasures, your guilty desires, those things that are tearing you away from God, it, it's a problem among all of you. Every single one of you has that problem. Now, it's easy for us to point the finger and say, yeah, that's true of them. You go get them, James. Uh, but uh, I looked in the mirror, and I was one too. You see, we all have those same kind of struggles. It wasn't just that God was speaking in his word to a group of people way back then. It's that he's speaking not only to them, but to us today. See, his word is just as true today in us as it was back then. And so we can say with absolute confidence, just like they could say, that our passions are at war within us. Our passions are at war within us. Just as theirs were at war within them, ours are at war within us. The battle rages over desires, passions, things that motivate and drive us. Because here's the truth of it. Whatever it is that you take the most pleasure in, whatever it is that you find ultimate happiness in is the thing that you worship. And so the battle is for the throne of the heart. It's not just for what are you thinking about, but what do you love? What do you find pleasure in? And we face that same battle that they face then. Our pleasure or our passions, you can put either one because they're both right, are at war within us. And, and that war kind of takes on a couple of different fronts. And perhaps in your bulletin, I should have put this uh, slightly differently. I should have worded it a little differently. I probably should have worded it as uh, um, that the passions... Uh, cause us to be at war because we find that we end up fighting on two different fronts this war that's being waged by our passions we find that this war happens with others look at verse one what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you this is an interpersonal conflict it's not just within us it goes beyond us and affects how we relate with other people what is it that's making you fight among yourselves what is, it, what is it that's making you uh, 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 quarrel and bicker and argue with each other? Is it not these passions, these pleasures? You see, I have my pleasures and you have your pleasures and they don't always align. 
Sometimes the things that you take pleasure in are the things that I don't. Sometimes the things I take pleasure in are the things that you don't. And quite honestly, when we are only interested in fulfilling our desire to have this particular thing, we are going to fight against one another. There is no Christian unity without Christ, right? He is the thing that bonds us together. And so when we are pursuing passions and pleasures of this world, we are away from Christ. He does not glue us together. Now remember, he's talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. Don't point your finger out there and say, those terrible people, thank God that I'm not like one of those sinners. Because the reality is, yeah, you are. You are one of those sinners. And so am I. You see, it puts us at war with others. We fight and we argue. Verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Well, that escalated quickly. Anybody remember a guy named David? David wants Uriah's wife. David takes Uriah's wife. David's wife, David, uh, um, Uriah's wife ends up pregnant. David gets Uriah home to try to cover his tracks. Uriah won't. He refuses to go into his wife. And so David has him killed. Now it started with a desire. It started with a carnal pleasure, but it escalated very quickly, didn't it? That's the problem with sin. It never, it never stays small. It starts small, but it never stays. Sin always grows. So you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You don't care about the other person. You want something that you can't have, so you're going to do whatever it takes to get them. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Look, you, you want this stuff, you can't get it, so you're cranky about it. Anybody get cranky when they can't have something they want? Sleep, food. Thank you, boys I, and, and girl. Thank you for being honest. Y'all need to teach the adults a lesson about him. You know? No, we all do, don't we? It puts us at war with others. He goes on to explain uh, why they don't have. They don't have because they don't ask. And when they do ask, verse 3 tells us, you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your own passions. In other words, you say, I, I, I want this good thing, but I want it for this terrible reason. And is God supposed to say, well, okay, as long as you want the good thing? No. You see, we got this all messed up. When all you are after is selfish desire, you're never fulfilled. Even if you get the thing you want, you're never fulfilled. But especially when you, you see, our passions put us at war with others. They also put us at war with God. And you have to see this coming, right? Because if we're loving God, we are going to love other people. So the fact that we don't love other people is evidence that we don't love God in the first place. Our passions are not only driving us away from others, they're driving us away from God. They're not only pitting us against one another, they're pitting us against God. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you love how the Bible authors sugarcoat things and dance around delicate topics? No, they don't, do they? Man, they, they, they hit straight. They hit you straight on. Do By the way, do you know why he calls them adulterous? Because they're worshiping their pleasure instead of God. They are committing a spiritual of adultery because they have made an idol in their own hearts. Boy, we've got to be really careful because our idols aren't always made of wood and stone. Sometimes our idols aren't really things at all. Their feelings, their pleasure. Sometimes they're represented by something physical, sometimes not. Maybe it's that lazy boy. Maybe it's what's on that screen. Maybe, maybe it's just, I don't want to have to do all that stuff. I want some me time. These things can become idle. Do you not know he can, that friendship with the world is enmity with, don't you know 
that friendship with the world, and this isn't just talking about people that are in the world. This isn't talking about you can't have non-Christian friends. What he's saying is if you really want to be buddy-buddy with the world as it currently stands, you are against God because the world is against God. You won't find a shortage of people among the enemies of God. No, they've got plenty. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You are putting yourself against or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That is, I have to admit, that is a difficult passage. Scholars, translators have really had trouble exactly parsing that. Yours might read a little bit differently. But the basic idea is God's jealous for his spirit. God's jealous for his spirit. He doesn't throw it around willy-nilly. You know, Jesus tells the parable, you don't throw your pearls before swine. James is pulling off of that. He's saying, he's saying, look, God isn't just going to throw his spirit out there for you to trample on and dump on and trash. No, no, he's jealous for his spirit. And when you're God, you have every right to be jealous. Then verse six, but he gives more grace. It's actually one sentence from five to the beginning of six. You see, you see, he is jealous for his spirit, but he also gives grace. He also provides the opportunity for us to change our ways. So when we are mistreating the spirit and when we are attacking God and when we are against him, he is still providing grace. Now there's a point in time where God's grace finally ends and he says, that's enough. But in the meantime, that's not what's happened yet. Sometimes we as Christians can get into this, this mode of living in which we are trampling on the Spirit of God, where we are, are just absolutely uh, uh, denying Him by our lives. And God is still offering grace and He's still saying, you know, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to fight me. He's talking to believers and He's calling them, but God gives more grace. I tell you what you do. You find yourself sin, riddled with sin. Just, just say that beginning of verse but God gives more grace because, let's just face it, we need more. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, now we're ready to get past the war part. Our passions are at war within us. They're, they're, they're putting us at war with other people. They're putting us at war with God. How do we get victory in this war? He's leading us right into it. The end of verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we're ready to see our means of victory. And the only means of victory over the, in this war over our passions, over these guilty pleasures that drive us away from God, the only means of victory is unconditional surrender to God. It's not, well, I've got a few demands. In 1945, the Japanese signed a document of unconditional. They, didn't, they couldn't make demands. Not when your enemy has an atomic bomb that levels a city. No, it's either surrender or be eliminated. And as much as it hurt the pride of the Japanese people, especially it's to admit defeat, they signed a document that says we are We make no demands, no condition. We, that's what we have to do with God. We have to make an unconditional surrender that says, God, I can't get any demands. I surrender. Verse seven, look at the first part. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Francois Fenelon was a Catholic a priest who lived in the late 17th, early 18th century. He wrote about this submission. God is not satisfied by the sound of our lips, nor the position of our bodies, nor external ceremonies. What he asks is a will which is 
no longer divided between him and any creature, a will pliant in his hand, which neither desires anything nor refuses anything, which wants without reservation everything which he wants, and which never under any pretext wants anything he does that unconditional. You see, when you have that will that is no longer divided between God and anything else, when it is totally focused on him, when you are completely and totally surrendered to God, that's when you find victory. You really want to win this war against the pleasures and passions that are driving you away from God? Surrender everything to him. That's how you win. We shouldn't be surprised by this. How did Jesus win? On a cross. His enthronement was on a cross. Like he, he didn't get the memo that, that a throne's a chair. He didn't get that memo. You see, because the way to victory over sin was for him to pay the price for our sin, a price that he did not owe, and a debt that we could not pay. So what does that victory look like in us? Well, obviously it's gonna, it's gonna require us having the power of God. And the first step of that is at the end of verse seven. He gives a couple of statements that, a couple of, of action words, imperatives, is what they're called in grammar, uh, they're commands. He says, first, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. That's an active resistance. It's not passive. That's not, I'm gonna sit in the corner and just kind of let things happen and see if anybody notices. I'm just not gonna do what he wants me to do. I'll just, I'll just kind of stay to the sideline. No, this is active resistance. This is using every ounce of power to put pressure on the enemy. You see, when you put trust in Christ, before that point, you can't resist. You're completely under his sway. But when you trust Christ, you become a rebel of the rebel. You start rebelling against the rebellious one, and you do so in the power of God. It would be like, uh, I, I don't remember the particulars of this, but there is, there's at least one movie scene like this. I think there's, there's multiple examples of it, but there's a bully, and a bully is about to pummel up on this little run of a kid. I mean, it's about to be really bad for that little guy, but then something happens. Something bigger and scarier than the bully appears behind the kid, and the bully is just like, and the kid's like, yeah, that's right, you leave. Yeah, don't you think about coming back either. Did the kid do anything? Not really. Satan's the bully. You are the kid. God is the big scary thing behind you that's scaring off the bully. It's God's power at work within you that resists the devil. It's not me getting up and pushing on him and saying, you get out of here, devil. It's not me grabbing some holy oil and throwing it around and saying, I forbid Satan from coming in this place. That's not what resist the devil means. It means that I live in the power of God and his power is what works to resist the devil. I just happen to be around and cooperative in the process, but it's still active. I got to actually do something. But the power doesn't come from me, it comes from him. Just like the power for a blender doesn't come from within the blender. The blender is just the device that uses them. I'm the blender, he's the electricity. And as we just saw a few minutes ago, you gotta have electricity for these kinds of things to work, right? Resist the devil. By the way, look at the result. He runs away. When you, by God's power, are pushing against the devil, resisting the devil, he has no choice but to tuck his tail and run away. Again, that's not me forbidding him from getting anywhere close to me. That's me living in God's power and he doesn't want to be around. He can't be around that. There, there's a positive aspect too. Draw near to God. Verse eight, draw near to God. 
Who to thunk it? And he will draw near. This draw near is used 42 times. This, this word is used 42 times in the Greek New Testament. 39 of them, as best I can tell, actually require a uh, approaching in a physical sense. The time, the time is drawing near as they were approaching the city. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Those are examples of that word being used. You actually physically get closer to God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to float up in the sky to get closer to heaven, but it does mean that you put yourself in the place where you're nearer to him. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight as we look at the, the discipline of prayer, putting ourselves in the right place. But we draw near to God. Now, notice you push against the devil and he runs away. Again, God's power doing, doing that. God, God's the one that's making that happen. But when you draw near to God, what happens? He draws near to you. You see, you don't get to God. He comes to you. So you start to him. He comes to you and he meets you there and walks with you. It's one of the, it's one of the most thrilling aspects of life to learn that you don't have to fight God. Walk to Another thing, the end of verse 8. I'm going to summarize this as clean up your life. He gives two. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. That, that's kind of a negative sort of a command. It's, it's get rid of the filth. You got to get some stuff out of your life. Just like cleaning your hands gets rid of all the dirt and grease that's on them if you're washing them properly. No names mentioned. But if, you know, if you're washing them properly, you're getting rid of all the dirt, right? Well, that's cleanse your hands. Who? You sinners. The people with dirty hands. The people that have been doing the wrong. Hey, hey, stop doing this wrong. Get rid of the filth that's in your life. Stop those terrible actions you did when you were merely pursuing your passion. That, that coveting, that murdering, stealing, that quarreling and fighting. Stop the wrong. By the way, you notice how many of those terms that he's mentioned in that kind of lifestyle break the Ten Commandments? It's not accidental, y'all. You can't live a life for God and be pursuing earthly. Then there's the second command. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Yeah, here's someone that needs to purify their heart because their heart is, is so focused on other things and it's so so twisted. And that's what Francois Fenelon was talking about. He was talking about this will that's divided up among all these different things. And what God wants is all of your will to be centered on him. So you double-minded, you folks that can't make up your minds, you folks that are tossed to and fro like ships on the sea. Sounds like James has said something about that before, right? The one who prays but doubts is like a, a double mind is a double-minded man. He doesn't get what he's praying for. He's unstable in all his ways. Purify your hearts as positive. Do what's right. Don't just stop doing wrong. Do what's right. You don't covet what someone else said. You love them. You don't get someone back just because they're cursing you. You bless who curse, who say all manner of evil against for my name. Sound familiar? You clean up your life. You stop the wrong, you do the right. Otherwise. Your surrender isn't unconditional. You see, it can't just be in your head. It's got, it's got to actually, the victory ain't won until your surrender is. Fourth thing, verse 9. This one may sound a little odd, but put it in context. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, stop taking pleasure in the things that pull you away from God. Stop setting your hearts on the things that break God's heart. Mourn your sins. Cry and weep over them. One, one guy, Ross King, wrote a song called Clear the Stage, and one of the lines is, tell your friends that this is where the party ends. Until you're broken for your sins, you can't be saved. And the whole idea is that we need to come to a place where we mourn and weep over our sins. 
So much so that it moves us to be heartbroken because God is heartbroken over them. You read through the prophets and you read guys like Jeremiah and you see the heartbreak that he goes through and you see that that is just a portion of what God is experiencing when he looks at his people and sees their wicked ways. I redeemed this people. I saved them from slavery in Egypt. I brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and now they worship other gods. They turn their backs on me. God's heart is broken over sin. He's not just mad about it. He's, he's hurt. And we should be too. Mourn your sin. Mourn over those things that you used. Last thing. He's already hinted at it. Verse 6. Now he's going to kind of neatly close it up. Verse 10. Humble yourself. He says it in the plural. Humble yourselves. But let's just apply it. I need to humble me. You need to humble. Humble yourselves for the Bring yourself low. Now that doesn't mean talk bad about yourself. Like God made a mistake when he made you. He didn't make no mistake. But it does mean taking an honest look and saying, hey, I, I really, I'm really not good at this. Mitchell, I need you to sit up rightly, sit up right. Humble yourself. You've already got an accuser, dude. Be honest. God, I really need you. You know, I really screwed this. Lord, I don't know what to do. I mean, there's so many different... I, I, I just don't know where to start. I don't know where to go. Or I think I know, but I need your guidance. I want to know that this is truly your will and not just what I want. Humble yourself. You know why God opposes the proud? Because they oppose him. But when you humble yourself... Then you're in the right position. God has something worth it. That's why the end of this verse is the promise. You see, it, when it's just about you, when it's about your passions, and you doing what you want, that's not someone God can honor. That's not someone God can exalt. That's not someone, that's not someone that God can walk with. I mean, how many of you like to be around people that think too much of them? How much less the holy God of wives know? God, God needs some humble. God wants some humble people. Because the ones that are humble will know that it's his work within them. They'll be giving him the praise. They'll be relying on him for the power. That's why this victory has to be unconditional. Because this war ain't. Maybe you find yourself in that spot of warring of the passion that are at work with those pleasures that are driving you. Would you humble yourself? We quote Second uh, Chronicles 7, 4, especially on patriotic. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves. Oh, wait a minute. What? The first step isn't to go slap some folks around with a Bible preach on street corners, to go door to door evangelizing. That's not the first step. No. The first step is if you will get over yourself, if you will humble yourself and pray and seek my faith and turn from their way, then God will do it. So would you humble yourself? Maybe, maybe you're, maybe you find yourself trying to be humble and you're, maybe even you're getting a little bit better at it, but you don't want to say that because that sounds proud. But you still see you got a long way to go and you just need some, ask him once again, rely on him, his strength to win this war over. Maybe, maybe you just know someone and your prayer needs to be the prayer of intercession. Whatever it is, you humble yourself, you surrender to him. I thank you, God, that you're not like all those other false gods that can't talk and are made of wood and stone, that are empty, that promise great things and don't believe. I thank you that you're not like those gods that are uh, myths, that we have to come up with something we have to create your name. We have to create your image. We have to create everything about you because well, you're not real. We thank you that that's not you. We thank you that you don't need epic lures to increase your fame. We thank you that you don't even us, but you love us anyway. Father, this is your love is unconditional. Our surrender to you. Be, take those desires. Father, this is your time.